All right. Well, last week we left off on First Kings three. Did anyone not get a uh, fill in the blank type uh, paper work for last week? You don't have one. We have a half a dozen things going on in the building all at one time here tonight, so this is a... That's why Pastor Greg's headed in one direction, and my mind is sort of heading in another, and but I'm going to do this one justice. All right, let's pray, and then we will... Actually, we're going to need to make copies of that one, then. Can you make uh, five copies of that? Ask Pastor... Just find Pastor Greg and say, can you make five copies of that? Okay. Does it work? Works. Yeah, it does now. The guy oh. came back. Yeah, the guy came back, and we have uh, we have it making copies. Okay. Yeah, we have a new, brand new copier came in today, yeah. yesterday morning or yesterday afternoon. But the technician came out today and was here all day long. It was, oh. you know, it was one of those days. I used to rebuild those when I first got learning. Did you? Well, we also were in touch with Quest today because it has a fax machine yeah. as part of it as a fax feature. Okay. But for whatever reason, the, the the printer, when it tries to fax, reads the line as busy because it's the DSL line. Oh, yeah. And we had a filter that Quest gave us way back when, mm -hmm. but it must be a new technology because that was about four years ago or yeah, like five years ago. And so now they're sending us out a new one. Hopefully that'll take care of it. Okay. But a new motor? Or no, a just a new, new uh, just a new uh, filter. We might have to get in there. I don't know. Hopefully don't. we don't have to. All right. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, that your word is life. And as we seek you, as we, we uh, read through your word, that we find truth. We find understanding. We find wisdom. And uh, we find you. And so, Lord, I thank you that as we read about Solomon and all the things that you did in him and through him, that we will be wise as he was in all the things that we say and do. Thank you for it, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, 1 Kings chapter 3, uh, to me, is the most important lesson we can ever learn and we can ever teach anyone, especially our children and especially our grandchildren, um, I remember exactly where I was, and I remember what the classroom looked like, I remember what the uh, teacher uh, looked like, I remember what the room smelled like, I remember everything about it when I was a little kid. I uh, had Bible school, or Bible, uh, oh, Bible school, Sunday school class, and in this class they were telling the story, they had the flannel graph, remember the old flannel graphs, those things were awesome, and uh, um, I've still been tempted to, to pull out a flannel graph on a Sunday morning sometime. And, uh, did, did you did you used to have all this stuff? Uh, that was amazing. Yeah. And uh, thank yeah. you very much. I appreciate it. I remember teaching Sunday school. Flannel oh, graphs. flannel graphs. Right. So I, I still love the line from uh, from uh, Veggie Tales where uh, they start telling the story where where uh, the prophet is using a flannel graph to tell King David why he. Uh, had sinned, and uh, so he pulls out a flannel graph, and everybody in the room goes, Ooh, flannel graph. <laughs> What's yeah. a flannel graph? 
You don't know what a flannel graph is? Oh my goodness. A flannel graph was a piece of flannel, a piece of cloth that was flannel, and you can stick other oh, other yeah. pieces okay. of flannel to it. It's just, yeah, I don't know, is it it's like you know the electricity or the static or whatever it is that holds it, I don't know, but and yeah, you can, Velcro forerunner. It was before, yeah, before yeah. Velcro, exactly. But they'd have all kinds of different shapes and animals and people, okay. and you know, put them up there and tell the story with flannel. Oh. We use it in the nursery. Yeah. Still, still yeah. here. Yeah. Glory to God. Yeah. The kids are growing up right. That's all. That <laughs> all right. So, but I still remember the classroom, and I still remember them teaching this story and talking about King Solomon. Being asked what what he wanted, what God wanted, you know, God asked him, "What do you want? I'll do anything for you." And he could have asked for anything, and what he asked for was wisdom. And then it talked about um, the teacher talked about what he got because he asked for that instead of everything else. And we'll we'll get to that right now. This story is so powerful because when if you if if a person does this, their life is going to be blessed. Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. He brought her, this is verse 1 of chapter 3, he brought her to the city of David until he finished building his palace and temple of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people, however, were still sacrificing at the high places because the temple had not yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the instructions given to him uh, by his father David, except that he offered sacrifices and burnt offerings on the high places. That actually was a, a transgression. That was a sin. For him to be doing that was wrong. Um, only priests were supposed to be making sacrifices, but David made sacrifices. You know, and so you, you look at the letter of the law and they were sinning. But yet, God blessed them. Why? That's one of my questions. That's that's one of the questions I keep bumping into when I when I read this stuff. Is that is a blatant transgression of the rules of the law? But why did God bless them anyway? Well, it says uh, you know God does not want the blood of bulls and goats, but a chest and pure heart. Mm-hmm. And both of them have a pure heart. Mm-hmm. You know, they had their hearts were in the right place. Mm-hmm. Remember, Saulo was kicked out of the kingdom for making a sacrifice. But his heart wasn't in the right place. Very good. Yeah. So it's it, it had little to do with the, the the rule of law. It had more to do with the heart. And that, you know, I believe that the law, you know, you know, it, it says it that the law was not there to make men make rules for men. The law was just show people sin. And the law only came into effect when the Israelites rejected a relationship with God at the mountain. Remember the mountain? Remember we, we talked about this you know, a few classes ago where they were going, you know, they were traveling through the desert before the, before the calf, you know, before the sinning of the calf. And, and God said, go to Mount Sinai and, and I'm going to reveal myself there. And I'll speak to you. Sinai, right? Was there, there was a couple of mountains he did it at, but I think that one was Sinai. He said, everybody get ready tomorrow. You know, get yourself ready. Get yourself uh, 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 sanctified. Tomorrow I'm going to reveal myself and I'm going to speak to you. But nobody touches the mountain. Don't even let an animal t- touch yeah, the mountain. Sinai. And so 
they uh, they all get ready, and the next day, you know, God shows up on the mountain. Lightning, thunder, earthquakes, fire, you know, the whole nine yards. And the people said, we don't want to talk. We don't want you to talk to us, God. Talk to Moses, and we'll listen to him. When they made that decision, they're the ones who set up the priesthood. I mean, God set it up in, his, you know, in, in the the official manner and saying, okay, you know, these are going to be the priests and this is how they act. But the people did it by rejecting a relationship with God. He wanted all of them to be priests. They could have all been like Moses. They could have all been like Moses. Exactly. And they didn't because of fear. Fear. Fear of God. The, that kind of fear, you know, there's the fear that we read about in the, in the King James which is really better translated, you know, uh, uh, deep respect, deep honor. You know, that's the, that's the kind of fear that's talking about. But they feared God. They were afraid of, of their sin. They were afraid of the presence of God. And probably rightly so. You know, they're human beings. They knew who they were, and they were afraid. But they also were afraid of him because they didn't know him. If they would have known him, they wouldn't have ran away from him. But because they did, they basically put that veil. Remember, it talks about the veil over Moses' face. When, when Moses did go and, and, and meet with God, from that day forward, his face glowed because of the presence of God. Now think about this. See, the, here are the things that the Bible doesn't say, but I sit and think about it. I was like, huh. One of them is this. Just think if every one of the Israelites had said, yes, we want that kind of relationship with God. And they had gone up on the mountain, they had spent time with, or they had, you know, not gone up on the mountain, but if they had spent time in the presence of God, and all of their faces shone. If they all had the glory of God on them. Just think about what their, you know, what, what life would have been like then. I mean, so these things happen where they made choices and it, and it separated them from it. So we get over to here, and Solomon is offering sacrifices. But it's still, they were told not to sacrifice in the high places. When we get past Solomon, we start going into the other kings. You know, there's all the sons and the grandsons and the great-grandsons and so on and so forth. Some of them offered sacrifices on the high places. Some of them destroyed the high places. And some were, were blessed because they destroyed them, and some were cursed because they sacrificed on them. So, you know, here Solomon did what he wasn't supposed to, but God honored him, and I believe you're right, because of his heart. Verse 6, Solomon answers, you have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he is faithful to you and, <clears throat> and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne every day. Now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a, a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. God said to him, so God said to him, since you have asked for this and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, nor for discernment and administering justice, I will do what you have asked. 
I will give you a wise and discerning heart, so that there will never have, so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have asked, what you have not asked for, both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. Then Solomon awoke and he realized it had been a dream. So, Solomon asked God for wisdom. He asked God for wisdom and he got wisdom. He got the, all the, you know, he got a download of wisdom. And the wisdom was so far surpassing of everybody that was living at the time, it drew crowds. I mean, people came to hear him talk. But the cool thing was, and this is the part that caught my eye, he got the wisdom and he got the riches and the, all the other stuff. So as a little kid, this one sunk in. Hey, if I ask for wisdom, I'll get all of it. And so I did. I just I was just bold enough to say, you know what, God, I ask you for wisdom, and I've asked for wisdom, and and it's been it's been amazing things that that where I have no idea what to do, God gives me the right answer, and I know other people who have asked for that. I tell I've told my kids, ask for wisdom. If ever given the opportunity, ask for wisdom. Don't ask for all the other stuff because you 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 ask for wisdom, you get the wisdom, and you'll get. With the wisdom, you get the other stuff. And so, to me, that is the, the I mean, yes, yes, salvation, <laughs> huge. Yes, yeah, yeah, yes, all the other, you know, spiritual things. But to me, asking for wisdom is the most important thing. Because then you get to, you have the wisdom to know how to use the other gifts that God gives you. Exactly. Exactly. <coughs> Where did he get the idea to ask for wisdom? Probably, well, I think, his father. His father? Why do you say that? Um, when he was speaking to... His father didn't ask for wisdom. No, he, but, he didn't uh, want... You know, David didn't ask for wisdom. At, uh, at Givon, that's the Hebrew, sorry. When I spoke to Solomon in a dream at night, tell me what I should give you, so... You showed your servant David, my father, much grace as he lived before you honestly and actually having an upright heart with you. Um, you serve this great grace for him by giving him a son this moment. I just, through that, I take it that David spent time teaching Solomon a lot. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think that David is what told him to ask for wisdom. Mm -hmm. That's just kind of, I'm reading into it, but that's what I get. Mm -hmm. It almost seems like he was nervous to rule. You know, like he did not think he was ready when he called himself a little child. You know, so maybe he just had a huge job and thought, I need this, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, to do your work and to live up to my dad, mm -hmm. too. Yeah, how old was Solomon when he took, took the reins? Was he 21? Was he 16? I, I don't really, I don't even know. Anybody to say anywhere? Have you heard anything, Kelly? Is no, I can look here. Okay. Turn to Proverbs chapter one. 
Proverbs chapter one, and it says it in, in, in most of the of the you know many of the proverbs. Solomon wrote most of them. He didn't write all of them. But it says, Listen, my son, to your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. They will be a garland to your grace your neck and a chain to adorn your neck. My son, and he goes on, blah, 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 blah. Chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 1 says, My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding, and if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord. Um, verse or Chapter 3, My son, do not forget my teaching. Uh, verse Chapter 4, Listen, my son, to your father's instruction. 5, My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Listen well to the words of insight, that you may maintain discretion and your lips preserve knowledge. He goes boom, boom, boom. Through here, he's teaching his own sons. And Kelly, I, be, you know, uh, I believe there's actually a verse that says, my father taught me wisdom. My father, you know, David taught Solomon to ask for wisdom, to seek wisdom. And then he passes it on to his sons. And so um, it does come from us. It comes from us, you know, instructing Chapter them. Chapter 4 in the first few verses. Is it? Is that the one we're looking for? Where, which one? In uh, Proverbs? Proverbs, yeah. Start with verse 2. Actually, verse 3. There it three. is. That's the one, yes. Go for it. It says, When I was a boy in my father's house, still tender and an only child of my mother, he taught me and said, Lay hold of my words with all your heart. Keep my commands and you will live. Get wisdom. Get understanding. Exactly. So, so David taught him to seek it, to seek wisdom. Um, whether David didn't early on, and you know, but you know, you see David's life, and from a young boy, he was he was wise. he was wise. He was he was full of, of the glory of God, yeah. and so you know, he experienced it maybe differently than than Solomon did, but he still got it. He you know, got he, it. Didn't ask for it. Got it. Yeah. And I always so, think of wisdom as you have to be old. You know. <laughs> You know, you acquire wisdom through life. You know, like my grandma's wise. Or, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You don't think of when you're young. You need you need age. You need um, experience to experience. acquire wisdom. You yeah, know? I've heard somebody explain one time that, that knowledge is, what, is the stuff that you gather throughout your life. Yeah. Wisdom is knowing what to do with it. Yeah. You know, wisdom is knowing knowing how to discern it and how to apply it to your life. And but I've met some very some some very wise young people. Yeah, you know that that get it that that understand that that don't have to do all the dumb things everybody else does because they they learn from somebody else. Yeah. So, you know that that idea. So the idea of getting wisdom as a younger as a younger person is really biblical. It's it's not a natural uh, process that humans go through. I think I think that people get wisdom. As they get older, and then there's nothing. I, I think there's nothing worse than looking back and going, "Shoot, <laughs> you know, I should have done that way different." <laughs> It'd be better to, to, in the middle of it, get the wisdom, you know. And, and the wisdom we can gain from this. We can gain, gain from the Word of God. We can gain from 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 uh, watching other people's lives and 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 learning from them. But uh, he was at least 20 years old. 
use at least 20. Yeah, okay. and it says because of First Kings 2 9, mm -hmm. he's called a man. Okay, so that's where they get to use at least 20. All right, I got another place I can look to. Before I go too much further, Last week I said that uh, what I wanted you to do is to write down questions, right? To go to read through these chapters and to write down questions that you come up with of, of things that you notice. Um, has there been anything up to where we are in this chapter yet where you had a question? Because I don't, I don't want to go right past those. <coughs> Just checking. Or if you see a question, you think, huh, why would that happen? Why would he do that? Whatever, uh, just go ahead and, and chime in. So he returned to, returned to Jerusalem, stood before the Ark of the Lord's Covenant, and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then he gave a feast for all of his court. So then the next story, and I'm not going to go through well, Actually, I do have a question on that. Yeah, go for it. Okay, it says a period of practicing the offering in the high places. But here it says he went down, but he went to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant. Um, was the Ark of the Covenant in a high place? I don't believe so. I think it was still in the same place that where David had left it at the uh, the threshing floor of... Uh, that guy's home? Yep. Okay, because he offered... David actually brought it into the city. There. But where was it in the city? Wasn't it? Didn't he, he bought a piece of land, right? And wasn't it the oh, wasn't it the, yeah, somebody's house? Right. Yeah. I thought it was. He bought somebody's property, and I thought it was. You know, yeah. but it was in the city, yes, because that's where the the temple was or is. And the city's on it. Right. So, I think the difference is, and I, you know, the to me, and and obviously anybody can say that you know, jump in here. I think the difference is is that the high place is just. Is, is it, I look at it as, as people trying to reach out to God, try to getting up to a higher place and reaching out to God. Whereas what he did after he asked for wisdom and he gained wisdom is he went to where the presence of God really was, which was the which was the ark. That was where the where the presence of God was. You know, um, and I think we still do those kind of things. Human human beings do that sort of stuff. Where we try to reach out to God, thinking, you know, you know, and people call it a religion nowadays. You know, religion is people seeking God, and relationship, or what you know, uh, what God wants us to have is when people actually find God, and it isn't through a, a continual, lifelong search for God. If you search your whole life and never find Him, you know, it's, you wasted your time. Um, but, and so you have to go where he is, and where is he? You know, he's at the cross. You know, I mean, not not still literally at the cross, or still, you know. But we have to go there to find God. We have to we have to start there. Um, you know, years ago, one of the th things that hit me as I was reading the scripture one day one day was, you know, that Jesus Christ is the door. We have to go through that door. We have to go through. Who Jesus is, what He did on that cross, and there's no other way into the kingdom of God except going through that door. We have to. That's why Jesus is so important. 
But on the other side of that door is the whole kingdom of God, which Jesus is a part of, God is a part of, the Holy Spirit is a part of. And to stay at the door forever is wrong. Now, now you got to get what I'm saying. I'm not trying to say that well, we leave Jesus behind somewhere. No, he he goes with us. He's you know we we continue to walk, but we have to. But we can't stay at the door. There's a whole kingdom of God out there that we need to that he wants us to occupy that he wants us to, to partake of and but he is the door you know we can't no one can get anywhere into the kingdom of God except going through Jesus we it has to happen there but some people think no I'm gonna find God my way I, I'm not gonna go to the cross I'm not gonna you know that whole blood thing you know I'm just I, I'm not into that well I'm sorry but I'm not sorry truth is truth. And when you don't get anyone, I'm going to go ahead and pull that door shut. Um, oh, that's right. We were going to have class in my office this week. So that's a frazzled night with all the stuff going on. We were going to have, because it's quieter on that end of the building. So, all right. We should be done next week. This, this is the last week to do this, at least for a while. Um, same thing with Solomon. All these people were, were doing sacrifices at all these high places. And we'll find out, sadly, at the end of his life, he goes back to the high places. Sadly enough. He builds this whole temple for God. You know, he does this whole thing, and the presence of God comes in, in an extremely powerful way. You know, blessing them, blessing them, you know, everything that they're doing is blessed. And he worships at the temple for the most part. But in the end of his life, he goes back to worshiping at the high places, which is like, ah, because you want him to finish well. But I think that's the, I think that's the, uh, the takeaway on this is that, you know, he was at the high place. God, he met with God, and immediately he went to where God really was. You know, the only place that God was manifest at that time was the ark, was the mercy seat. Okay. Solomon was 12 years old when he succeeded his father to the throne. Really? Yeah, in the morning period following his father's death ended, Solomon went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices. While Solomon was in Gibeon, God appeared to him. Mm-hmm. Now this is coming from the uh, from the actual Jewish commentaries, not the, not the other commentary I was reading, so I trust this one better. Mm-hmm. Wow, okay. So twelve years old, I and mean, he's he's taking a nation and trying to and trying to lead a nation. But praise God, his dad said, "Get wisdom, mm-hmm. get wisdom." Mm-hmm. And when he got the wisdom, it worked. And he still would have been considered a man too. And Jewish At twelve, custom. right? <clears throat> all right. So starting with verse sixteen, we've all heard this story. We've all read this story. It's the idea of the the uh, woman who had. These, the two women who had two babies, one of them died. Um, the other one takes, switches the children in the night. And uh, when, the, when the second one wakes up, she realizes that, the, that her baby was dead, but then realizes that it wasn't her baby. Takes that to the judges. The judges um, obviously couldn't settle it. How do you decide? How do you decide which one is which? And they brought it all the way up to the king, up to uh, Solomon. And he said, um, they told the story. He said, bring me a sword. 
I'm going to cut it in two, give each, uh, give a half to each of the mothers. That's kind of crazy. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> yeah. Say, what? But what it did was it revealed the hearts of the people who were involved. The woman whose child was already dead says, fine, neither one of us are going to have a child now. Fine. The other one says, no, let it live. You, she can have the baby, let it live. And immediately the king knew who, that's just wisdom, that's godly wisdom. Interestingly enough, that story is all over the Middle East. It's not just King Solomon. It's a, that story is told about other people, but it would be. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty amazing story. I mean, it's in, I think it's even in the Quran, um, talking about Muhammad, that Muhammad actually made that judgment, um, and uh, so on and so forth. But, you know, of course it would be. That is a, that, that is a very wise story. Um, and, uh, you know, just like any story you hear nowadays, and, you know, and, and we joke about it in pastoral circles, is, the first time you tell a story, you say, well, so-and-so used to say. And the third time you tell the story, you say, um, you know, I can't remember who it was, but, uh, you, know, so, you know, somebody said one time this. And by about the tenth time you say, you'll say, the, the way you tell the story is, I've always said. <laughs> and so, you know, it, it changes with time. And, uh, and that's one of the uh, dangers, but it's also one of the, one of the truths. But it shows the wisdom of, of Solomon. If he's 12 years old coming up with these kind of wise uh, judgments, it, you can see why his fame spread, why, why people were drawn to him, why people were, um, why they would come seeking him from all over the known world at that time. Okay. Any thoughts or questions? The only other person at that age that was astounding people was Jesus. Exactly. He was in the temple with the priests mm-hmm. and explaining the scriptures to them. Mm-hmm. Yep, and they said, where did he get this knowledge? Where did he get this, you know, and it says that even from there he grew in wisdom and stature. Yeah. Is, so this, you're saying this particular story is in like the Quran then? And there, telling... there are versions of this story in all kinds of Middle Eastern uh, yeah. writings. Okay. But... I don't doubt that it started here, that it started, you know, from Solomon. And then, you know, over 20, 30, 40 years, their king was the one who made that decision, you know, and, you know, whoever they are, you know, and and then, you know, 14th century, Muhammad's on the earth, you know, and somebody goes, oh, you know, Muhammad was so wise. Did you hear what he did one time? He did, yeah. (laughs) So, but I don't, you know, I, I fully believe that Solomon was the one who made that judgment. You know, the first one. But I just, you know, kind of threw that out there to let you know that people, it, it is out there. You'll hear it. Some, you know, I've heard people say, oh, you know, that the Bible isn't true. Because that story about Solomon, you know, everybody has that story in their ancient writings. Mm-hmm. Well, great. That's what you believe. But there still is, there's still an original, you know. There's still the first person who really did. It's like the, like the well, sayings. You know, who said such and such? Well, you'll hear four or five different people claim responsibility that they were the first one to have a such, you know, a certain saying. Well, there had to be a first one somewhere. All right. Anything else? Yeah, it it sure makes uh, comes from a different point of view, don't it? Makes you think. Mm -hmm. How do you? 
And who would think of that? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Just, yeah, you could you could just tell that God's hand was on it. Mm-hmm. You know that it, that only God could, could come up with that kind of wisdom. You know. So, amen. All right, First Kings four. We'll actually catch up tonight because a lot of First Kings four and five. And some of even six is just talking about just recording stuff, yeah, and that's what they questioning. Yeah, and that's what they did was they you know they recorded stuff. They this happened, we recorded. So you know, uh, First Kings is really a narrative. It's a historical document. It's a narrative of what was happening uh, in the day, and we can we can pick things out of it um, where we'll learn stuff. Like in the first three obviously there's a lot of it. But um, a lot of it is, so, you know, Solomon's officials and governors, and he just goes through this Jehoshaphat and Benaniah and Zadok and Abathar. The one that just jumped out at me was Ben-Hur. Did you notice that one? Mm-hmm. Ben-Hur was one of his, uh, so, you know, I thought it was just interesting that they, uh, I see where they, Cecil B. got the, uh, got the name for, for his character. <laughs> All the way down to verse 20. It says, The people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They ate, they drank, and they were happy. That's a great line. <laughs> you know, I mean, they're, they're writing this, this uh, um, documentation of King Solomon's reign. You know, someday I hope when they write about the, when they write the documentation of River Valley Christian Church that they say, When Pastor John was a pastor, they ate, they drank, and they were happy. <laughs> You know what I mean? That's, that's just a... Yes, sir. And you raced. And we raced. <laughs> that's right. And he drove the other church's other pastor off the road. <clears throat> I'm still hearing about that. Hey. Oh, yeah. Still, People are still... They, uh, commenting? Still commenting. I don't, know. I don't think they'll ever forget over there. Don't they know you're supposed to forgive and forget? I, mean, I don't think they've even forgiven yet. How far... How far is the east from the west there? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. 21. And Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates River to the land of the Philistines. As far as the border of Egypt, these countries brought tribute and were Solomon's subjects all his life. Well, where are you at? Uh, ch- uh, chapter 4, verse 21. Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Read those boundaries again. Ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates River to the land of the Philistines. As far as the border of Egypt, these countries brought tribute and were Solomon's subjects all his life. Here's where I wish we were in a room with a TV and I could show you the map. Because that map is way bigger than the land of Israel as we think of it today. You know, it go. It went. It went past the Jordan River all the way to the Euphrates. I mean, that's a long ways. That's that's much of uh, of the desert. You know, I mean, well, all of the desert because it, then it goes all the way to Egypt. Also, wouldn't that be like to Lebanon, Syria? Yeah, you have a map here. Well, this is the old one. Um, that's the, the nations of Genesis. That's the area from. In, Genesis. Mm-hmm. But here's the Euphrates. Yeah. So yeah, the, the Euphrates. Is it okay if I pass yeah. this around? So the Euphrates goes all is the first river before you get to the Tigris, 
and then it goes all the way to Egypt, which is all the way down around that Sinai Peninsula, mm-hmm. down below. And so it's a huge chunk of, of land, way bigger than anything that people would, would look at today and say, well, this is what Israel has a right to. Mm-hmm. You know, My dad often asked me years ago, he says, well, what, what was the original land given to the Israelites? And when you look at the 12 tribes, it was obviously everything that's Israel today, plus on the east side of the Jordan, there was a, a bunch of property on the east side of the Jordan. So, um, but he was ruling even a bigger chunk. The desert, you know, because of David's fights, because he was, didn't he fought against the Edomites and everybody else, you know, settling the score from the Exodus, um, that, was, that was just a huge chunk of land that he was ruling over. And throughout his whole life, they were subject to him. So as that makes its way around, verse 22, pardon? No, I, I just found a map in the back of mine too here. And it's okay. in the kingdom of David and Solomon. Yep. So verse 22, Solomon's daily provisions were 30 cores. Yes. What does the uh, the note in the bottom of your Bible say? Five bushels. Five bushels? Yeah. On, on the computer that I found, it said five and a half tons. Oh, yeah, and I, I I don't know. Five bushels is still a lot, and especially every day, because well, it says here daily provisions was five and a half tons. That, that just seems too big for me. I mean, you know, maybe maybe in a year. Mine's got 150, 150 bushels of flour. Mine has one hundred eighty-five. <laughs> Well, we've decided tonight that the uh, notes at the bottom of our Bible are not scripture. They are errant and uh, are not perfect. So, it's a lot though. Even five and a half bushels. When you think about five and a half bushels of of, uh, flour every day, that's a lot. Well, one one core is five bushels. So if you've got 30... That means you've got 150. So then, then what, Kelly? Yours said 150. Yeah, 150. Yours said 185. Yeah. Yep. So ish, you know, mm-hmm. right in there. That's a lot of flour mm-hmm. every day that they would have to that they were, you know that he received in tribute. Sixty cores of meal, which would probably be what like uh, oats or you know corn or whatever. And ten head of stall-fed cattle, and twenty of pasture-fed cattle, and a hundred sheep, and goats, as well as deer, gazelles, roebucks, and choice fowl. Now, why would he need that much food? Yeah, a thousand wives. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, big family. He had a big family. <laughs> He had a big family, plus he also had servants, plus he also had guests. I mean, and Daryl said he had an army, too. Exactly. So you have, you have a huge amount of people that are dependent on him, but really they're not dependent on him. They're dependent on the people who are paying tribute. And so people are are working, which made me you know think of God and Samuel back at 1 Samuel when they said, you know, when the people were asking for a king, they both said, don't do this. You have no idea what it's going to cost you. 
Think about this. Saul or Samuel, no, that's either one of those. Solomon, thank you. Solomon had all that provision that he needed every single day to keep up his lifestyle. To keep up his lifestyle, his family's lifestyle, his troops' lifestyle, his his uh, all these guys that we read about, you know, all of his governors and officials. I mean, he's keeping this lifestyle up for these people, which means he's taking it from other people. We're gonna we read about, um, or we're going to read about. The commentary says two hundred and forty bushels. <laughs> No one really knows how much. First Kings talks about when he starts to build the temple, he sends a, a note to uh, the king of Tyre and says, can I buy logs from you? I want to buy lumber from you. I want to buy logs. And the guy says, absolutely. I'll, I'll keep you supplied in logs because he was building the temple and his own castle or his own uh, palace and things like that. Well, he sent, he had 30,000 men 10,000 each month who he would send to work in the, the woods to cut down trees in Tyre. And he would rotate them so they would spend a month in the woods, they'd spend two months at home. But it says that they were forced labor. They weren't, they, it wasn't that they were, you know, who knows if they got paid. It says they were forced labor. labor. So all of a sudden, you have a good king. This guy's a good king. I mean, he's the best of the best. He was wise. He was benevolent. He was awesome. He was amazing. But he still expected all of these provisions every day, 365 days a year. Plus, he had 30,000 of his own people in forced labor cutting down trees. And you know there was more than that. That's just the ones cutting down trees. And then the next verse says he had 70,000 who carried burdens and 80,000 who worked in the quarry. So that's 150,000 right there. <clears throat> so you start taking all those people, put them in the quarry. These are your own people. Mm-hmm. You can see why God said, don't, don't, don't do this. <laughs> you don't need a king. I'm your king. Let me be your king. Just think what life would have been like had they just trusted God and did it his way. You know, this is a, a perfect picture, a perfect example of, of, you know, why don't we do it God's way? When we do things our own way, it usually becomes a burden. It usually becomes uh, a stress in our lives. I've seen it way too many times. And it's usually when I start getting stressed, and I usually when I'm starting to get burdened, that I go, okay, what did I do that God told me not to do? What am I? What am I doing in my own strength, <clears throat> rather than trusting Him in His strength? And this is an example of it. They're, they wanted a king, so even the good king puts them into extra work. Well, wasn't all these people in servitude for uh, the building of the temple? Yes. Okay. I wonder if they were really considered in servitude. I guess they would have. I don't know. When, when it says forced labor, yeah. that, to me that's kind of a giveaway. Yeah. Otherwise it would be you know voluntary labor. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it would talk about that. But it doesn't, it says forced. You know, and I think it's one of those deals where, you know, he's a good king, he's a good he's a good, you know, ruler, he's a good monarch, and he says, Here's what I need you guys to do. And and if I said that as a pastor, 
it's a suggestion and, and a cho- an opportunity for choice. But if the king says it, you may still volunteer, but it's not because you necessarily want to. It's just bad form to not to not volunteer. You know, it's kind of like I've never been in the military, but you know, we need a volunteer. <laughs> yeah, and one of you is going to volunteer, or five of you, or fifteen of you, or whatever. We're just going to stand here until you do. Somebody's going to volunteer. Very much like that. So he ruled over all the kingdoms and had peace on all sides. That was the amazing part. You know, God said to David, you're not going to build the temple because you're a man of war, but your son will be a man of peace. But because of David's wars, Solomon had peace. Because uh, David did fight those wars, they were able to enjoy the fruit of it. During Solomon's lifetime, Judah and Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, lived in safety, everyone under their own vine and under their own fig tree. So then it starts going down. Solomon had 4,000 stalls for chariot horses and 12,000 horses. That's amazing. That's a lot of horses. So the note I made was just what the comment I made earlier. Remember that both God and Samuel said that the king would require tribute and tax the people, but because he was a godly king, at the same time they were all blessed. They all had their own vine. They had their own tree. You know, so it's you know, okay, God will work within the system that they're asking for, and so they're going to be blessed anyway, because because God, you know. Because Solomon was a good king and he he wanted to bring a blessing to the people, God didn't necessarily want this kind of a monarchy. But you know what? I can work within this. They're still blessed. You know, and there's in Proverbs, I believe, you know, all kinds of places where it says that uh, when the when the when the king seeks God or when the king is a godly man, the people rejoice. You know, if if a person is truly godly, then people rejoice. If the if the king is not godly. The people are tremble. The people are in trouble, and uh, that doesn't change. That hasn't changed in, in five thousand years. You know, it's the same today. And, and, and I'm not just talking governmentally. I'm talking about a, a boss having in a company. If a person is is a godly figure and and, and, and leads wisely, the people are happy, even though it may be hard work, especially if it's hard work. I mean, people like to work hard. People like to work, have, have, have fruit of their labor. They like to see a, an accomplishment. They like to see, and, and if, if their boss is somebody who is, a, is, a, is, is seeking God, that's a wonderful thing. Hey, let's work hard. I, I don't mind working hard. But if the, if the boss is an ungodly man or a woman and is a tyrant, it doesn't matter how much or how little you work or how much you feel satisfied, life's not good. Okay. Yeah. That's going to get to the temple here in the sixth chapter, but there was no tools used on the when they actually put the temple together. There were there were tools used in the quarry, yep. but never on the site. Yep. And like when they would uh, in the holy of holies, they would actually lower the guys down on ropes so their feet would never touch the floor. Mm-hmm. Twenty-seven, verse twenty-seven. The district governors each in this month supplied provisions for King Solomon and all who came to the king's table. 
They saw to it that nothing was lacking. They also brought to the proper place their quotas of barley and straw for the chariot horses and the other horses. 29. Solomon's wisdom. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Now, I have to ask this because it just, you know, I'm, I like to ask questions. If this is a chronicle of Solomon's reign and the guy is sitting there writing down each day what's going on, you don't think he would write down, Solomon was a pain in the backside. <laughs> you know? Which you know, I read this and I go, Solomon had great wisdom, a breadth of understanding, measureless as the sand on the seashore. Okay, did he, I mean, is that the way people really looked at him, or was that, he was writing that because Solomon was looking over his shoulder at the time? But, the other flip side of that is later on in Kings, when it talks about the bad kings, it talks about the bad kings. I mean, it it tells you the full story, both good and bad. So, but I just, in my in my humanity and my questioning, I always look at that and go, right, the guy, the, Solomon goes, I'm going to be reading this this afternoon. You might want to <laughs> yeah, to make, make it look good. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the people of the East, greater than the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than anyone else, including Ethan the Ezraite. Wiser than He-Man. I love that one. He-Man, He-Man. Castle Skeletor. Cal Cole and the Darda, the sons of Mahal. And his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs. <coughs> Excuse me. And his songs numbered 1,005. So that'd be psalms then, right? He spoke about plant life from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of walls. He also spoke about animals and birds and reptiles and fish. From all nations, people came to listen to Solomon's wisdom sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. So, his wisdom was not just governmental. You know, yes, that's what he asked for. He 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 said, God, if I could have anything, I want wisdom to lead your people. God, I don't get it. I'm a young kid. I don't have all the answers, but I really want wisdom to lead your people. And God was pleased with him and said, yes. Because you asked for that, I will give that to you and everything else. So he wasn't just wise in the governmental stuff, which would have been great. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, talk about a life in the politics, that's awesome, you know, life in government service. But he also got all the other stuff. He got wisdom in all of the, the nature and, and the nature of things. I mean, you read Ecclesiastes. This guy was trying to figure it out. He was trying. He, he was so hungry for knowledge and wisdom that he wanted to answer all of life's hard questions. You know, Ecclesiastes. I'm, I actually look forward to teaching that class because so many people say that Ecclesiastes Ecclesiastes is such a downer book. I don't think so. I look at Ecclesiastes and I get excited because here's a guy who really wanted to figure stuff out. It's he, almost a curse to him. It, it, almost. Because it says, you know, madness. <laughs> you know, this is maddening. It's driving me nuts. And that's where people take it and go, well, see, he was losing his mind because he was, you know, seeking after wisdom. No. He's seeking after all this wisdom because he really wants answers. And then the final line is just the most awesome line. 
after everything I've learned, after everything I've sought out, after everything I've, I've studied, the answer to this is, and he gives us the answer to life, seek God, love him. End of story. And that's just, but he did, he just, he got stuff. He, he, he had wisdom and he sought out wisdom in, in every area of his life. And the other thing that sticks out to me and pops out to me here is people just wanted to hear him talk. Can you imagine just sitting listening to the smartest guy that's ever lived? <laughs> I mean, other than this place. Yeah, I, was <laughs> I beat you to it. I yes. know. I was like, okay, guys. Here it comes. Here it comes. But wouldn't that be awesome? I mean, that's just, you know, I mean, uh, in college, I had professors that would put you to sleep in a second. But I had some some instructors who were amazing. One guy was a... He was, it was a, a, a science and a technology science class. And this guy comes in and he walked funny and his arms, he, was, he stood like this and he walked funny and he, he was deformed. He was physically deformed. And I just, I, I'm sitting there and it's a 300 person lecture hall and I'm thinking, oh, this is going to, you know, immediately my mind jumped there. Stupid. You know, I, you know, don't judge a book by its cover. He gets up in front, he puts on the microphone. And, hi, my name is, you know, and he just got this weird voice. Oh, great, this is going to stink. <laughs> and for the next 16 weeks, I was absolutely enthralled every day. Absolutely amazed. This guy worked for NASA. He, he helped uh, build the first uh, lunar landing modules that landed on the, on the, you know, just, he just, whenever he would talk, he'd just go, oh, my goodness. This is just amazing. And the, the, the information, the wisdom, I loved that class. Had to repent. Another class I walked into, and I had, was, I had heard this guy was the guy to take for history. I mean, history. Give me a stinking break. Not only history, but government. You know, the Congress is made up of 455, and you just, ugh, drive me nuts. But I'd heard this guy was good, and so I tried. I went to get in. I couldn't get in until I was like a junior because all, you know the classes just disappeared. So I went and listened. And the first day, I'm sitting in the front row because it was the only seat left. I got there late. Everybody else was behind. And he goes, "I can teach this class two ways. I can either teach you the way that everybody teaches you. The government is broken up into three parts, and blah blah blah. Go through the judiciary branch and go through the party, you know, the executive branch. Blah 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 blah. Or I can tell you how it really works. This guy had lived in the Beltway for over 25 years as a, as a journalist, as a, as a president, or not a presidential, but a congressional aide and all these He had seen the inner workings. He knew these people that he was talking about. This class was two hours a day, three days a week. I mean, you talk about a two-hour lecture, three days a week, and if it isn't good, boom. I would sit there absolutely enthralled for two hours. I would look forward to his class. I mean, it's just like, when is that class coming? Yeah, I'm going to go back. Because he would tell stories about people you really had read about in the news and that he watched, you know, he saw them in debates and he just, you know, he interviewed them as a, as a, as a you know. So, so he, I get that feeling. I get that understanding when you, when you sit and you listen to somebody and you just can't wait to hear the next word that comes out of their mouth. Solomon was that guy. And then people would come from, it's almost like university. You know, you, people would go there just to learn. You know, what did, what, did, what did Solomon figure out this week? You know, and so he, uh, he was that guy. Any thoughts about chapter 4? 
done with both chapters today. Because one of them is very short, and the other one is uh, short. Well, in, in verse 32, it says he spoke 3,000 proverbs. Would that mean he memorized anything? I don't know. What does yeah. that mean? He spoke. <clears throat> you know yeah, I don't know. Because, I mean, we, we, the book of Proverbs, I don't think, has thirty or has 3,000 verses, does it? I mean, if you... Mine says he composed 3,000 proverbs. Yeah. Oh, composed? Yeah. So. You know, if that was just like, you know, the witty sayings, and some of them were written in Proverbs, I don't know. You know, the Psalms, I mean, he wrote Psalms, he wrote songs, but so did David and a bunch of other people. You know, there's a lot, of, the Psalms are not just David's writings, but it's, you know, it's made up of mainly them, but. So, yeah. I think he was just a smart guy. I mean, you know, bottom line, he was, God gave him wisdom. All right. First Kings 5, preparations for the temple. Uh, Hiram the king heard that Solomon had been anointed king to succeed his father. He sent his envoys to Solomon. Because he had always been on friendly terms with David, Solomon sent back this message to Hiram. It goes on to say that uh, um, Solomon thanked him for being on his father's side. He uh, just let him know that he's given him rest on every side. There was no adversary, no disaster. Um, and he talks about him, I intend to be, verse 5, I intend to therefore build a temple for the name of the Lord my God. As the Lord told my father David when he said, Your son will, whom I will put on the throne in your place will build the temple for my name. <clears throat> so give orders that the cedars of Lebanon be cut for me. My men will work for your with yours and I will pay you for, with, for your men whatever wages you set. You know that we have no one skilled, so, no one so skilled in felling timbers as the Sidonians. And they must have been really good because there's no trees left over there. They, uh, they cut them all down. When Hiram heard Solomon's message, he was greatly pleased. Praised, praise be to the Lord today for he has given David a wise son to rule over this great nation. So he had not only had wisdom in governmental things, but in natural things, the, the you know, sciences and, and all those kinds of things. But he also knew how to do, deal with people. He had good interpersonal, uh, interpersonal skills. He, you know, he, he could recognize when you give favor to somebody. You know, somebody who's really good at working with people realizes there's sometimes you give favor, sometimes you give mercy, and sometimes you lower the boom. But you do it at the wrong time, and you're a fool. And you do it, you know, as a boss especially. There's times when you when you give people grace and you you know what I'm you know I understand I get it, but then there's also times where you cut where you pull in the chain. It's time. Let's go. Let's get this work done. And doing it at the wrong time can be can be destructive in your place of business, in your job. <clears throat> Solomon got it. He got when to when to. Um, when to do these things uh, with, you know, obviously world leaders at that time, but also you know within his own household. The interesting thing is, the son that took over the, the kingdom when Solomon dies didn't get it. If you, if you remember, you've ever heard that story, and you'll we'll get to it. When Solomon dies, his son said. Uh, now I'm really going to put the screws to you guys. Now you're going to work. You thought my father was heavy-handed. 
You wait till I get done with you. And immediately people revolted. And so he didn't get it. Why didn't he get it, do you think? I think Solomon was too busy to spend time with it. Too busy with his wisdom. Or, or too busy pursuing wisdom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or too busy taking care of the horses and the wives and everybody else that you know, everybody else that he had to deal with. So, yeah, he did. He, he apparently didn't convince his son to ask for wisdom, and it it came back to bite him in his lifetime. Mm-hmm. Verse eight. How many sons did Solomon have? I don't know. I would imagine with that many wives, a lot. <laughs> so he just. There's no way he could have spent enough time with each kid. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Yeah, it definitely isn't uh, quality time. You know, it's, no. it's quantity. You know, it's quantity and quality. You know, but yeah, he never spoken to. He apparently didn't speak to his son's, son's life. And you, you know, you see that with all these different. You know, we were talking. What was it? Was it last week we were talking about it? Whatever is. You know, David didn't do it right. He must have with Solomon, obviously, first of all, for whatever. Or, or, Solomon's just that kid that got it. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, you know, I, I have worked with, I've been, you know, in ministry for almost 30 years now. And a lot of that time was working with youth or working with people with youth. And I, so I, I've seen families all over that you'll have two kids in a family and the, and the parents... At least from the outside, I can see they raised them exactly the same, and one kid is an amazing kid, and the other one is always in trouble. Some of you recognize yourself in that. But they're the same parents. You theoretically, you think they raised them the same way. I mean, you think they would. I don't. I mean, I don't see any differences. And yet, one kid is just everything they do is right, and the other kid is everything they do is wrong. And it's like, how does that happen? How does that? Well, I think there are some kids who just get it, and some kids just don't get it, or they think they can get it some other way, you know. So, you know, I, I talk to parents, and they go, you know, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. It's like I don't know that you did anything wrong. That child has to make a choice. That child has to decide how they're going to live their life, and uh, you know, some kids are wired differently than others. You know, it's funny. Deb is Deb is the person who just does it right because that's what you're supposed to do. You do the right thing. Me? <laughs> Not always. I want to. I want to experience this. Okay. So if I push this button, what's going to happen? <laughs> boom! Oh, that was dumb. And you still have to deal with the boom. You know. I mean, it's, it's not like okay, I just learned that. Okay, I will never do that again. But I still have to deal with the boom. So, you know, life is such as life. Well, let's give the mothers some credit. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything we've been talking about is the father. But they spent time with their moms, so maybe their moms right something. Yeah. Well, yeah. Solomon's mother was wise mm-hmm. because she was married to Nabal, who was a fool, and she called him a fool and don't listen to him. Listen, don't hear, I'm going to, you know, hear, I'm bringing this, so don't kill my husband because he's a fool. No, Solomon's mom was yeah, Bathsheba. Was. Oh, that's right. Yep. Yeah, yep. that's right. Yep. I'm wrong. Yep. She must her own window. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, she, she must have been amazing. Right. You know, for, for David to say to her, your son will become the king, 
there had to have been something there. Yeah. There, there had to have been a, a deeper relationship. Yeah, she made him promise that uh, he would make Solomon king, if I'm correct. And when, where was that? It could be. It certainly could be. Uh, I read it somewhere. <laughs> I know it says, well, it, it says it in, in First Kings here, we just read it last week, that she said, remember you promised me. That, yes. my, that my son would yeah. be king, but that's the only, that's the only place I know of. Yeah, that's sure. the only place I know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, why did he promise her? Did she talk him into it, or did he just do that? Why did he do it? Did he do it as as retribution? You know, to 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 make up for how badly he messed her life up? I, I don't know. Interesting. I, I don't know that answer. It, it really is going to be fun to get to eternity and watch all the old films. <laughs> and see what really, really happened, and and watch the old films about, you know, even David on his days off, you know, just wondering, okay, what what was his life really like? Now my my films are all going to be uh, sealed for the first two and a half billion years, you know, because you know we don't want to see my time off, you know, I mean all the dumb things I've thought and said, but I really want to see the old Bible characters, you know, and see all the to see all the old stories. But. Oh, they did some dumb stuff too. Yes, they did. <laughs> Especially yes. him. <laughs> yes, they did. So. Verse 8. So Hiram sent word to Solomon, I have received your message, you sent me and will do all that you all that you want, providing the cedar logs and junipers. Talks about how he's going to do it. So really it's just working out the contract. I'm going to do it this way, I'm going to do it that way. Verse 10. In this way, Hiram kept Solomon supplied with all the cedar and juniper logs he wanted, and Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household, in addition to 20,000 baths of pressed oil. What do your, your commentaries say? Because they're worthless, but let's hear them anyway, so that should be fun. 20 measures. And what does that mean? <laughs> I don't know. What's a bath? Is it, is what? Verse for you, sorry. Uh, oh, 11. 11. Yeah, mine's a thousand gallons of oil. Thousand gallons of oil? Yeah. 100,000 bushels of wheat. 100,000 bushels. And this one, it says he did this for Hiram year after year. So that may have been like a yearly supply. No, that was the yearly amount, which makes sense. Yeah, that's That seems reasonable. Yeah, that's what he said. This is, uh, this is what Solomon gave Hiram each year. Yep. There was peaceful relations between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a treaty. 13. King Solomon conscripted laborers. So conscripted means you're going in and you're saying, I'm taking you, 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 and you. Draft. It's a draft. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was a draft. Uh, from all over Israel, 30,000 men. He sent them off to Lebanon in shifts of 10,000 a month, so that they spent one month in Lebanon and two months at home. Uh, Adoniram was in charge of the forced labor. Solomon had 70,000 carers, 80,000 stone cutters, as well as 3,300 foremen who supervised the project and directed the workers. As the king's command, at the king's command, they removed from the quarry large blocks of high-grade stone to provide a foundation of dressed stone for the temple. The craftsmen of Solomon and Hiram and the workers from Babylon from Biblos, cut and prepared the timber and stone for the building of the temple. So they began to work, and lots of them. I mean, when you start talking about 70,000 carriers, 80,000 stone cutters, you know, when they talk about 
uh, building the pyramids, and you've got these great big stones. I mean, it is. It's just a monumental task. And, and I see, watch some of these shows, and they say, well, see, it couldn't have been done by human hands because we have a crew of 300 men out here, and they can't move this stone. Okay, well, that's great, but give them 80,000. We'll move the stone. You know, it, 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 when you start looking at the sheer volume of the number of people working on these sites, you can see how they did it. You can see how they moved those whatever stones from one place to another or, you know, from hundreds of miles away or whatever. You know, you give them enough people, you can do anything, you know. And people, can, people assume that they, would be, that they were ignorant, that we are more intelligent than they were. We're not any more intelligent than these mm -hmm. people were. Mm -hmm. They were, I mean, they were very ingenious. I mean, look at the things that Herod built. You know, just amazing. Yeah. And they had more time. Mm -hmm. There were, they, you know, they didn't have movie theaters to go to, and they didn't have a grocery run to make. You know, and they had people. You know, more more than likely, the the stone cutters were farmers. You know, the stone cutter, the, the farmers were just, that's what they did is they produced food and brought it in. And, and that's where the stone cutters then, they worked full time and they got fed by the king. You know, so when we start looking at so many tons of food and this and that, you can see where that might be a possibility that they were feeding all of these people every day to, to do this work. And, and that's where they were, that's why they needed all of that food. So. Eighty thousand stone cutters. Mm -hmm. I mean, that that take a special talent. I mean, eighty thousand of them. I mean, that's a lot of guys doing the same. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? You know, but there might have been there might have been uh, however many pick a number that knew how to do it, the and training. then and then one guy had a hundred guys. Go, okay, get along this line with your chisels and start pounding. You know, boom, boom. You know, that's the there isn't a lot of brain power behind that. But you probably have one guy that knows, okay, you've got to put it along this line, and he marks it up. you got to hit it this way and whatever. But then you've got huge numbers of people that just do the actual physical work of it. And then you have 80,000 who can carry. That's what I said. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Those stones are just amazing if you, if you ever go to Israel. So now the Wailing Wall is part of the, the Wall of Solomon's no, Temple? It's, uh, that's Herod's. It is Herod's. Western, okay. Western Wall. Okay. But I mean, they're just the normal ones are from me to Diane here. You know, huge. And then when you go underground in the tunnels, some things are like 50 feet long. They're just, oh, it's just unbelievable to think these. And they cut them with chisels and hammers. <laughs> mm -hmm. And they cut them perfectly. Yes. You know. All right, chapter six. In the 480th year after the Israelites came out of Egypt in the fourth year of Solomon's reign, reign over Israel in the month of Ziv, the second month, he began to build the temple of the Lord. So 480 years, a lot had happened. You know, all of Exodus, all of Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Judges, all of those, um, all of those stories, all of those people... Uh, Abel, uh, not not Abraham, but uh, you know everything that had happened was 480 years, uh, culminating in in, in uh, David's reign, and then Solomon starts to build. 
Verse 2, the temple that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long. Okay, I, I never have memorized what exactly a cubit is. What does your Bible say? 105 feet. So 105 feet long. 35 feet wide. And 52 and a half feet tall. Uh, yep. Wow, that's, that's a narrow, tall. So 150 long. 105. 105. Yeah. Trying to think of how big this building is. I think it's 120 long. So not quite as long as this building. And then this one is, is on, it's 85 feet wide. 60, 75 feet wide. 75 feet wide. So you said it was 25 long, or wide, how wide? 35. 35 wide, so it's half of this building. It's, you know, figure a little less than half of this building. And then it is 52 and a half. Five times taller than this building. Yeah. You know, I mean, if you figure the roof, I think the roof is, they had to, they had to build this building. It's two inches shorter than 20 feet. Because if they went to 20 feet, they weren't going to give them the permit. So they had to build it two inches shorter than, than 20 feet. So it's two from the ground to the peak, two and a half of these buildings. That's tall. Mm -hmm. My goodness. All right. The portico at the front of the main hall of the temple extended the width of the temple and was 20 cubits, projected 10 cubits from the front of the temple. He made narrow windows high up in the temple walls against the walls of the main hall and inner sanctuary. He built a structure around the building in which there were side rooms. The lowest floors were five cubits wide, the middle floor six, third floor seven, he had offset ledges around the outside of the temple so that nothing could be inserted into the temple walls. Why is that? Why is that a why is uh, uh, Kelly? Why would that be a mentionable? I don't know. I'm looking. <laughs> Are you looking it up? Good. Yeah, I got a book on the temple here. I've heard that. I'm like, man. I said, why? You know, why was that a big deal? There must be something to that. Verse seven. In the building, only blocks dressed of the quarry were used, and no hammer chisel or any iron tool was heard at the temple site while it was being built. So, why is that? I think to, to treat it as holy, you know, just that it was, you know, I heard somebody explain one time what, what they explained, and I don't know how valid this is, but it, it's interesting, it's possible, something to think about, that it was a symbol that, you know, it was like a, not a symbol, but it was like a an expression that it was not built by human hands, that it was built by God, or it was built for God. Kind of like, because the temple, you know, we could spend years talking about what the temple signified, what it, what it was saying, because every detail of it meant something. That's why God said, do it this way, and do it that way, and do this, and this long, and this high, and this wide. It had all these details in it. And even how it was built... I think was was important because, like he's like you know, if you take the the temple, the temple is a representation of what? Us. Us. It's the it's the it's the representation yeah, of man something. of a man the with the presence of God dwelling inside of it, and you and, and, and all these different parts and, all, and and how you approach God, and all, it all had meaning. 
And so the idea that, that a chisel and a, you know the chisels and hammers weren't heard there is kind of like um, the idea of the temple is us and it's not made by us. We're not sculpting our lives. One that's full of the life of God, it's God who does it. So so you don't hear the, the tool. So I think it was a symbol of that it was it was a holy place and that it was you know it was not made by human hands. It was, obviously, but it was the idea of it. And then like what Kelly was saying, when they built the Holy of Holies, no one ever stepped foot into it. Even while it was being built, they would lower people down on ropes and place, you know, place the stones, do the, you know, whatever it was that they were doing. They never actually st- stood in that place. The only place, that, the only per- people who ever stood there were the priests who brought in the ark, and then the priests who, who went in once a year went into the holy place, the most holy place, the holy of holies. So there's a lot of symbolism wrapped in all of that. I had a friend who, at one time who was trying to write a book about all the symbolism. I mean, he was, he was talking about the pomegranates that were carved into the into the woodwork, and, and that everything had meaning, everything had a had, had purpose. And he told me one time, he said, he says that he says if, if we could really grasp what God was saying through the temple, we'd be absolutely amazed. I mean, we we would it, would, it is a whole revelation in itself of what he was saying. Through the building of the temple, uh, absolutely amazing. What verse was that? What about the uh, stones? Seventeen. Um, oh no, that wasn't it. Seven. Oh, where the holy holies? It wasn't that. Where was this at the time though? When they're building, that wasn't brought in there yet, right? The, the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark wasn't brought in yet, no. But where, but the room when it was being built that was going to hold the Ark of the Covenant, they never, they never stepped foot in it. That's what, but they made, that's what his commentary had said. Yeah, verse seven of Second, First Kings six. What does it say? Because mine doesn't say that. In building the temple, only dr- blocks dressed at the quarry were used, and no hammer, chisel, or any other iron tool was heard at the temple site while it was being built. Okay. Chapter 6, verse yeah, okay. 7. Moving on. Eight, the entrance to the lowest floor was on the south side of the temple. The stairway led up. So he built the temple, and I'm jumping around. I'm, I'm just moving through it because it's basically just describing what they were building. So he built the temple and completed it, roofing it with beams and cedar planks. He built the side rooms all, all along the temple. The height of each was five cubits, attached to the uh, temple by beams of cedar. The word of the Lord came to Solomon, As for this temple you are building, if you follow my decrees, observe my laws, and keep my commands, and obey them, I will fulfill through you the promise I gave to David your father. And I will live among the Israelites and will not abandon my people Israel. Interesting. Remember he said that? Uh, God told David, if you follow my decrees, I will bless you. There will always be one of your descendants on the throne. So the next descendant on the throne, he says, remember what I said to your father David. Now if you follow the decrees, I will keep this promise to David. So each king was responsible for continuing the blessing on their family. 
and and then we get into the the later genealogies where you see they didn't. Some did, some didn't. But when they did, then the the promise was in full, was in full uh, full um, effect. If they didn't, the curse was in full effect. And so, but it was each generation generation, which I think is extremely important. It isn't just this blanket. You know what, David? I'm going to bless you because you're so awesome. I'm going to bless your whole family forever, and then they can live any way they want. No, every generation has to serve God for themselves. They have to know God for themselves. They have to seek God for themselves, and they have to obey Him. They have to live right before Him. All right, verse 14. So Solomon built the temple and completed it. He lined its interior walls with cedar boards, paneling them from the floor to the, to the, of the temple to the ceiling, and covered the floor of the temple with planks of juniper. He partitioned off 20 cubits of the rear of the temple with cedar boards from floor to ceiling to form within the temple an inner sanctuary, the most holy place. The main hall in front of this room was 40 cubits long. The inside of the temple was cedar, carved with gourds and open flowers. Everything was cedar. No stone was was to be seen. So the stone was the was the framework, the strength of the building. But everything else was cedar and wood, different kinds of wood, planks, and so on and so forth. You have uh, the miracles of the temple. You're talking about the holy, holy of holies. One of the things is they say that the uh, the inner dimensions of it weren't big enough for the. Uh, the high priest to prostrate himself, mm-hmm. but every time he went in there, he was able to do that. But it, technically, it wasn't big enough. It was one of the miracles they say that mm-hmm. happened in the temple. All right, verse nineteen. He prepared the inner sanctuary with temp- uh, within the temple to set the ark of the covenant of the Lord there. The inner sanctuary was twenty cubits long, twenty high, and twenty wide. He overlaid the inside with pure gold. So the whole thing of the inner sanctuary was was pure gold. And he extended gold chains across the front of the inner sanctuary, which was overlaid with gold. So he overlaid the whole interior with gold. He also overlaid with gold the altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary. For the inner sanctuary, he made a pair of cherubim out of olive wood, blah, 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 second cherub. He placed the cherub inside the most, the, the innermost room. So the Ark of the Covenant was underneath two statues of cherubim with their wings touching. And that was, so the, that, then underneath that directly was the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. On the walls, go ahead. Those cherubim were huge, too. Oh. They were, it says 10 cubits, so that's probably close to 18 feet tall mm-hmm. each. And gold. Yeah. Overlaid with gold, I mean. Yeah, yeah, the mercy seat was below the chair. Yep. On the walls all around the temple, the inner inner and outer rooms, he carved cherubim, palm trees, open flowers. He covered the floors with both inner and outer rooms of the temple with gold. I mean, the whole inside of the temple was covered with gold, which is a type and shadow of us as believers. The outside is wooden planks. The inside is completely covered in gold. So it isn't what it doesn't look, no matter what it looks like on the outside, on the inside it's almost like he was dressing down the temple from the outside. But on the inside, where the presence of God dwelt, dwelt, it was pure. It was pure gold. 
31, the entrance of the inner sanctuary made doors out of olive wood and fifth, uh, the width, one-fifth of the width of the sanctuary and the two olive wood carved cherubim, palm trees, so on and so forth. He also made two doors out of juniper wood, each having two leaves, that blah, 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 so on a hammered gold, uh, even over the, evenly over the carvings. He then built the inner court, three courses of dressed stone, one course of trimmed cedar beams. The foundations of the temple was laid in the fourth year, in the month of Zin, in the eleventh year, in the month of Buell, the eighth month, the temple was finished in all of its details according to its specifications. He had spent seven years building, building. I have talked too much today. I have reached, I have reached the point of talking too much. He spent seven years building the temple. I'll bring uh, my actual book on the temple next week. Yeah, that'd be awesome. No, that temple still stands or can it be destroyed? It was destroyed. It was destroyed and all the was stripped out when they when they took the, the Israelites captives. Took them to Babylon. And then it was not rebuilt until Herod's time. Well, I shouldn't say that. Did they redo the temple? But it, but they had brass and it wasn't. Uh, as well, Herod's was supposed to have been the most glorious, I think. No, but I mean, wasn't it wasn't it rebuilt after they came back from Babylon? But yes. Uh, but it was it was it was less decorative, much less. Nehemiah. Nehemiah. Nehemiah yeah, rebuilt it, and it was basically like a, just a wood a wood house, I believe. Yeah. Yep. Uh, then Herod rebuilt it, and then that's when Romans destroyed it. Yes. And it's not going to get set. Any other thoughts? Uh, Next week, five, or I'm sorry, seven, eight, and nine. This we talk about those blocks. It says here we feel almost the same. Speaking of the proportions of the holy house itself, it was built on immense foundations of solid blocks of white marble, covered with gold. Each block measuring, according to Josephus, sixty-seven and a half by nine feet. Mounting by a flight of 12 steps to the porch. So one block was 67 and a half feet. That was the, the Solomon, the steps up to Solomon's porch. I believe so, yeah. yeah. Very good. Bless you folks. Any other questions, thoughts, snappy answers? Yeah, it took Harry 46 years to build his. It was bigger too, wasn't it? Yeah, it was huge. He built because he had to build up the whole Temple Mount area first. They call they think they call Herod one of the great builders of all time. Oh yeah, because it was dark, raven, mad lunatic too. It wasn't just that that he built. He built all kinds of stuff. Yeah.